All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Scott LeMay, and this is the Data Driven Supply Chain Podcast. Um, I'm joined by my co-host, Yasin, who is the COO of Axia, as well as a guest that I'm very excited to speak to. Um, joining us today is Drura Parrish. Uh, he's joining us from Lexington, Kentucky, and he's the co-founder of Bcom. Previously, Drew also founded another startup, MakeTime, which went on to merge with the manufacturing powerhouse, Zometry. So welcome, Drew. How's life? What's uh, what's happening? Uh, life is good. Uh, like, like we were just speaking, I'm a little nervous uh, that my children are going to blow the door down. But other than that, everything everything is good. It's been a splendid, wonderful, beautiful Friday. That's all I can say. Amazing. Well, we'll get through as many... Uh questions as we can before any kids come bursting through the doors. Um, as, as I mentioned, you co-founded Bcom. Did you want to give uh, our audience before we start a little insight into what's going on over there and what are what are some of the problems you're solving for? Oh, Jesus. Um, just coming, coming strong. So, <laughs> so uh, it's kind of funny. Um, you, you live this stuff all day and then somebody asks you what the hell you're doing and you have no idea. So, <laughs> So, you know, we're all from similar worlds uh, on this little podcast. And one thing that uh, through throughout my career that I've been adamant about is, you know, increasing the speed by which, you know, somebody can conceive and do something. And so with, with Make Time, it was about how can we take the hardest, most time intensive thing for a creative or an engineer uh, the most mundane thing, which is just like quoting to get something done. Um, how, do, how do we expedite that? And then after doing make time, uh, and then subsequently Zometry, um, and I'm a, I'm a shop rep uh, from the beginning, but uh, noticed that, you know, all the while that like, you know, demand for manufacturing and demand for goods is going up and like, you know, supply uh, or supply chain uh, never felt as much pressure before, even though it looks so promising, uh, in particular American machine shops, the costs weren't going down. And, and ironically, they were, you know, they're going up. So BCOM is just basically, you know, the world's largest now um, industrial parts kind of price intelligence platform. And also, not only can you check the price across 500 vendors so that you know what you're that you're getting the best price, for example, but you can do it in a, a fraction of the time, even though the irony is like, we think that, you know, Google and all these tools that we have and all these ERPs and all this blah, blah, blah um, can help us. It doesn't. Technology has only added complexity. So anyway, so we've stripped down the complexity, just say, okay, like how much is a drill here, here, and here? How much is an end mill here, here, and here? And then show people uh, the pricing trends. And then also, uh, while you're seeing what those best prices are and you have the confidence for that, you can check out at 55,000 vendors with 55,000 products all in one card. So basically, it's trying to you know, just peel back the past 20 plus years of quote unquote so-called productivity and parts distribution to give like makers and manufacturers a little more leverage um, and on the price cycle side so that part production price can go down so that more things can get made, you know, more cheaply. And then subsequently, hopefully people uh, with crazier ideas can make even crazier shit. And so that's it, you know, it's just like, think of it like as the, the dumbest, biggest um, 
smartest industrial supplies uh, place in the world. It's just tons of fun. I, I love that last explanation, the dumbest, biggest, smartest. Well, uh, I, I wanted to give you the chance to just get your name out there right off the bat, because I, I'm sure we'll get into some other conversations, but great kind of first explanation. Um, it's a great it's a great platform. I would encourage everyone to check it out right after this. Can you let us know how you eventually transitioned into finding, um, let's say, your meaningful place in supply chain? I'm curious to learn more about your, your manufacturing story. For sure, yeah. So, you know, I started out in manufacturing, right? My family, they were manufacturers or they grew into manufacturing. And um, so it was in my blood. And there was like, you know, you just can't leave that kind of DNA. And so I went off to, uh, this is kind of interesting. This is my, uh, another quasi connection here to, to Canada or at least French Canada. Um, I, I went to work at a um, chateau in Haute Savoie in France. I was working in a CNC machine shop after undergraduate. And the, the head um, of the shop, he was Swiss, and he's like, hey, um, a friend of the family has, he, he's the house manager for a chateau and they need a laborer. You know, do you wanna go over there? I was like, fuck yeah, I wanna go over there. I was not like, you know, at the point, at that time I was like in a, like a garage machine shop, which is not a, a happy place. And it was a happy place, but it was just not a happy place. Like if you're 20 something and somebody says, do you want to go to France and live in Chateau? You say, yeah. So, um, so I went there and, um, and it was the, the Chateau that, uh, unified, uh, it was, uh, Pelly's Chateau. Um, and he was the great unifier of France. And, um, they just had me build shit everywhere. So it was just building, building, building and making, making, making like built like outhouses, guest houses and stuff. And the guy was like, hey, uh, the guy that owned it, he was an architect. And he's like, you should go to architecture school. So here I was at machine shop. And the guy was like, hey, you should go into architecture. So I go into architecture. And um, I went all over the place in architecture. And I, I landed a place uh, called SciArc in Los Angeles, which is pretty experimental uh, architecture school. Like crazy shit goes on there. Like if you just go down like the, the list of alumni, like m a lot of these people go out and just build crazy startups, like in robotics and things like that. The, the whole premise, you know, there is just like, yeah, just fucking do it. Just like whatever the imagination can do, like own the industry around it. Like, you know, the way you're, you know, things that I remember that you're taught, so it's like Brunelleschi's dome in Florence is not just beautiful, but it's the ultimate manifestation of like capital markets. Like, like capital markets were created to sustain Brunelleschi's dome as much as like, and so it's a very like, you know, systems-based way of approaching, you know, life. Um, and so uh, when I was there, the, the big word was fabrication, like parametric design. People were fucking doing all this crazy shit. But there wasn't anybody dumb enough to build it. Like the big stuff, they just weren't dumb. And then Kian, my, my Kentucky genetics, I was just always the, the person to be like, I'll do it. Like, <laughs> like, like, I'll do it. And like... <laughs> You know, like they would give me like a 3D file and I would look at it and just hand shave foam because, it, you know, we couldn't understand uh, CNC stuff yet. And then we started graduating into CNC, 3D printing. This is all while we we're at school. And I remember when I when I graduated, I had um, I had a, like an outro uh, coffee with the director of my graduate program, Michael Speaks, who's like a huge proponent in design thinking. And like he's a, you know, 
and practice and agency, what it means like, you know, 22nd century, not 21st century thinking like everybody as an entrepreneur through the ability to put something in the world that is inherently like industry and production, stuff like that. And he was like, uh, hey, you know, you're like the second best student in this program, which means you're top 50 in the school, which means you're top 5,000 in the West Coast, which means you're top 50,000. He just kept going. He goes, which means you're like, you know, maybe top 200,000 in terms of an architect, which means it's going to be a very hard road for you to do crazy shit. And he's like, so you might want to think about if you, you know, if you ultimately want to have agency over your own design, what can you do in the market that will increase your the potential for you to do the things you want to do? And I interpreted that as like, oh, like I need to go and facilitate all these crazy ideas. Like, like just go, you know, think about a contractor, um, but, but for the most bizarre of applications, like just things that people were building. That otherwise, everybody would say no to, you know, so like, I started doing work for uh, Hernan Diaz Alonso, who's a forever mentor of mine, who just made these crazy parametric forms. And, you know, in order to do it, we had to do, you know, 3D printing to roto molding. Then we'd had to do vacuum metallization to give it the finish that it needed. And so those are things like at that time, like imagine an artist going into a manufacturing facility and saying, I want to make this blob silvery. Right. There's just this, dis, right. you know, disjoint uh, and like nobody could communicate. But I was going all over Los Angeles. And at this time in the early 2000s, and if you don't know anything about L.A. now, it's like two thirds of the U.S.'s CNC install base is in that region yeah. now because yeah. of airspace. Well, the, all that infrastructure was there, but it wasn't being there wasn't the demand. then, Right. It's just like starting to grow. So I'd go in and I'd be like, OK, look, I've got this crazy. Uh, art, the sculpture thing that I got going to New York. Um, it's not going till May. Uh, can I option? I'd go to El Segundo to an aerospace uh, five axis shop, be like, can I option this machine? Right? Like, I'll pay you the, you know, your overhead and, and time that it's sitting there so that when I need it, I come in, you kick whoever's off and I run my part. And so I had a little black book and I just, I'd go around and I'd have all these hours in shops. And so then my job was to go get, like, make sure that my demand funnel was going into these. So that was like the beginning of make time. Like I was doing what's known as arbitrage, taking underutilized capacity. And then I was putting all these weirdos that had never, ever thought of doing this shit, right? Like to manifest these forms. And, you know, at that point, the big crux was like, they didn't know how to make the file to go onto the machine. They didn't know how to be like Kentucky enough to navigate a shop. And just like, you know, I, I go in there and I look like, like a weird lumberjack. And for some reason, nobody would question me. Like I would say all the wrong words, but they would think they were right because that sounded, you know, like a certain way. So, so long story short, that's, that's where I, I entered back into manufacturing just kind of by accident, my love of design, first and foremost, just like facilitating the insane. Like that was my, my hope was just like that nobody could ever, that no would never be the issue for something to enter the market. And so over time, of course, like you start to understand the cost of these things and you start, then I was like, I've got to, you know, got to parametricize this shit. I've got to, I can't afford 
to not understand the economics of these productions. So you start, you know, it starts with an Excel stupid algorithm, and then it starts to mature in a different way. And then before I know it, um, you know, I moved back to Kentucky because it was cheaper to run a shop here of my own to do assembly. And then I got pulled in to, you know, teach a couple of courses at the University of Kentucky. Um, and like, it just make time just happened. Like, and I know that this, you didn't ask this, but make time. Um, I remember talking to a friend, I just talked to him today. And um, I was just like, look, uh, it's like, I just, I don't know what, what the hell the next step is. Like, you know, I'm just like, I was maxed out. I had a great economy for myself, but like, I was doing so much. And he's like, have you ever heard of the internet? And I was just like, I, I couldn't tell if the guy was fucking making fun of me or, or whatever. And it's like, but when you think about it, early 2000s, even, if somebody asks you if you heard of the internet, it's not preposterous to think that maybe I don't fucking know what the internet really could is, you know, you could build on it. Um, this wasn't the early 2000s, by this time it's about 2011. And, um, and so he's like, you just need to embed your pricing and your methodology and bring your customers to one place. So that's how I got back into the supply chain. A long-winded way of telling me, but that's how. It's it's a, a great story, and I appreciate you sharing that. Something that stuck out to me is you mentioned design a few times. Obviously, you come from a very creative background. Um, I, I'm curious, as you entered back into manufacturing, um, I, I'd like to touch on creativity a little bit. What what is missing in supply chain and manufacturing? How can we be more creative? Why does the industry need creativity and how can we get there? No, oh, I love that question. I think creativity has become such a bad word. Like, um, you know, especially the advent of like, well, I think you think about creativity as it applies to ML uh, and AI, like which is potentially more creative, for example. Like just, we can get into that in a second. But I think that, what I learned uh, through my, my education about creativity is inherently the difference between like efficiency and invention or invention and innovation, right? And I think that neither are bad, but design teaches you that if design is great, it exceeds all value. Right, it's inherently 150%. You're not approaching 100%. And so that always like stuck with me. Like, so like back to Brunelleschi's dome, like it's just like, you know, to build the world's largest dome, like so many things like fucking perspective, perspectival drawing was basically right. invented to articulate the dome, which and, became- And maybe maybe for our audience, not to interrupt you, maybe if you can give the, the background of Brunelleschi's dome to set the scene. Yeah, well, I just like the the one minute story is like the, the Medici's are like, we need the world's biggest fucking dome. Like we're gonna uni unify currency and make Florence, you know, the right. capital uh, of like a unified currency. And Brunelleschi is like, holy shit, I don't know how to fucking do this. And so he goes off and he invents the tools to do it. Like, and most notably yeah. perspectival drawing, which now it gave rise to 3D, you know, everything 3D, like Descartes comes along, like all these fucking people, uh, come along just because of the just the fucking crazy proposition. So you've got a problem, the world's biggest dome, because the world's most powerful family wants an expression of something. 
And then subsequently, you have tools to create a gazillion things forever. And, and so back to creativity, it's like, you know, the one, I'll, I'll kind of bounce around for a second, but I'll never forget, like in the, the 80s, you know, these um, uh, 80s and 90s, these integrators would come visit my family. Oh, we can increase your operational efficiency, blah, 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 forever, blah, 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 blah. Like we can do this, blah, 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 blah. And I just, my, my grandfather, after they would leave, it's not that every manufacturer doesn't, or anybody that makes anything love the idea of that dream. It's just how, how, how can it happen, right? Because like everybody's hair's on fire. So then, for example, for my family, like in answering that question, he, I remember him uh, talking to one of these integrators, he's like, fine, just build me another factory while I'm doing this. My point in bringing that up is just like, creativity is a hard economical proposition when the pressure around everybody is so immense. And it's just like, yeah. and when the pen, the penalties for operation, you, you guys are, you know, serving yeah. aerospace and you guys are serving, you know, automotive and like, you know, one second down. So if you think about truly what, where, what is the place of creativity in manufacturing? It's a hard one because yeah. it's almost, a, it's almost like, it's like you have what we have now hit the fucking nuke button. Then we do, we've got to do something else. So, I really do think that like you will always have problem solvers. You will always have, you know, magicians of efficiency, but like creativity, I would argue the place for it. And I just had this conversation in the past two days that I don't know if you can hear the construction, I'm sorry, is that the one thing that AI I think brings, I don't give a fuck about any of the other magic that it purports. I think it will bring the greatest hardware acceleration that we've ever seen. And it will create gaps to allow people to start thinking creatively again. So I think the confluence of those two things, hardware in order, like when I say hardware, we are going to have to think about making machines to accommodate AI more. And by them, by us doing that, we're going to reconfigure supply in a way that we've never thought, which in turn is going to rethink, help us rethink all the shit we can make on the new stuff, right? And while that's happening, all the new softwares that are going to come in there are just going to fucking kill wasted time. And so as a result, I just, my hope is that creativity, you know, in its purest form, we're like 10 years out, like we're like 15 years out where it's just like, where we're like, why are we still fucking printing like this, sometimes like that, and cutting like this, and sometimes like that, and why aren't we just doing that? And so once we fucking get there, then we get back to like, what's the really fucking hard question we wanna to apply to these new methodologies? Like the problem is, I don't know if you guys have seen that horrible, the fuck is the name of it? Arrival. Have you seen Arrival? It's yeah, the yeah. alien movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. See, with the time stuff and then the, that's right. the language. Uh, with yes. the languages, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So manufacturing's limit is the language that we use inherently to make things. G-code, like M-code, like yeah. whatever these process-based, the fucking Roland printer language from fucking 1965, whatever the hell it is. Like we are limited by this and we can't 
you can't just slap on new efficiencies to yeah. holistically change the whole thing. Right. And so like creativity is just like, I just feel like it's a, it's just a, like, we'll, we'll get there right now. We're, we're edging towards, you know, 48% efficiency through the whole supply chain. I mean, just like think for a fucking second, like think about SAP, like as a piece of software, yep. think about any of the software we fucking make. There's like problems that we approach creatively or creatively, but we're not being in like truly creative yeah. in the output of yeah. what that thing is. Yeah. Like create creativity and manufacturing is literally hitting a button and you and I all have fucking, you know, like a car made out of fucking French fries. And then we're like, mm -hmm. Oh, that was, that was wrong. Make it out of fucking spaghetti. That, <laughs> and that's that, you know, just the messiness of that is creative. It's just like, it's just like, what is the fucking hardest question that we can ask and get a result out of? It's not like how, you know, can we get to Mars in 28 days, right? It's not like that. It's just like, what's the harder question? And until we can't find the fucking question to ask, we're always operating, I think, in the sphere of efficiencies and innovation versus invention. So I, I I no I I I love that response and and Yasin I I I I'm sure you have some input here on the topic of of creativity and manufacturing. What uh, what are some of your thoughts here? Yeah, well, uh, this uh, 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 this whole uh, this whole discussion uh, that we had on creativity. Um, um, one student of mine that he, he worked uh, at our company for a while is is working on um, uh, breaking the mold of. Uh, uh, um, like a 3D printing of a uh, 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 homogeneous structure because you can 3D print homogeneous mm -hmm. structure is pretty easy. Uh, but um, when you look at uh, in nature, like a, a bug, uh, a cell, whatever, um, how it's structured internally is not homogeneous, it's, it's heterogeneous. So mm -hmm. it's more efficient. But when you look at the tool to actually try to replicate this, it's super complicated. Um, mm -hmm. So the guy spent like six years just to try to break this um, uh, break this barrier so that we can think more now into making something heterogeneous. So, okay, I just need those kind of parameter for for uh, this 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 thing that will hold this and it can have holes in it. There will be less material, um, but I just want it done. And then mm -hmm. uh, in a in a non-parametric way, uh, a bit organically, it can build something that will will sustain this. Uh, but then you need to be able to to kind of uh, do it. And then the 3D printer could technically do it, but you, we cannot generate this uh, mm -hmm. efficiently. And that's the problem. The problem is not like actually putting the stuff together. It's at the limitation of how do we express that. Right. Um, so it resonated a lot, uh, uh, and I and I do agree. Like uh, that that creativity is limited by. Uh, by this constraint here. It's fascinating. It really is like, it's just like the crux of it. Like, you know, I just like, if like we came back from the future, let's just say a hundred years from now, and we look at what we have infrastructurally, we'd be like, oh no, like it's just, just, oh no. You know, it's like stamping, cutting, packaging things. It's always coming down to like, kind of almost your point, just like assembly like very in unsuccessful assemblies too like in like inefficient like not even beauty isn't a component like 
there's nothing that we've made really that that can rival the structures that are already out there for us just to grab. Like, and I'm just constantly amazed by that. It's just like, so, you know, you just think about like, you know, back in the day when I was in architecture, MIT was doing a lot, you know, just like with um, organic printing and they're still doing stuff like that, but to like multi-material printing, like looking at like cellulose, like looking at like, how do we grow stuff? And it's just like, you just think about what we're doing now. It's just so rudimentary. It's going to be the same yeah. as when we, when we exhumed, like, did you guys see that they think they just found the oldest structure ever made by a humanoid from 500,000 years ago? And it's really no different than what we're fucking doing now. It's, you know, wood. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen that, no. Yeah, it was just like, you know, <laughs> wood that was carved to fit over wood, you know, like it had a platform and they had sharp stuff cutting it. And so it's like, you know, cool, we have cars. What the fuck ever? It doesn't mean anything. So anyway, but that's fascinating. After this, I want to learn more about uh, what your former, what do you teach? Do you still teach? Me? No, I don't yeah. teach. He uh, was an intern and he was working with me on different like uh, AI project uh, that we're yeah. doing, but uh, he was doing his thesis at the same time. And the stuff he was doing, the problem he had to solve, the technical ones in order to do that was were crazy. But the cool <laughs> thing is that he open sources code. So we're one step, uh, one step further. I love that. I love that. If we could just teach the rest of the world how to use open source to their advantage now then that's the yeah hey but like that the, that's a that's always I, I love the you know the the startup trap like no matter how sexy something is your go-to-market is always just like you know i just like it could be the sexiest ai blah 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 like sentient like laser bot and you're like you're still scraping leads off them <laughs> to, to get somebody to to buy your sentient yeah. Like laser, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, that's, that's hilarious. That's... <laughs> um, one one thing that I want to <laughs> that's awesome. One thing that I want to go back on is in in one of your uh, when you're talking about your transition, I think from architecture to manufacturing, um, or no, when we were talking about creativity, you said what's the biggest problem we can think of, right? Like we got to mm -hmm. think bigger. Um, so I I, I want to chat a little bit about design thinking for a minute. So why is design thinking important for, for manufacturing and procurement um, going forward? Oh, what, yeah. and, what, what are some impacts? And, and maybe if it just for the, for the sake of it, what, what would be a, the 30 second kind of overview of what design thinking means? And then how can that be applied to manufacturing to, to uh, make a bigger impact? I'm if that's too much, then we can we can break that down. <laughs> no, no, I mean that's a lot, and I'm gonna yeah. certainly certainly botch it. Full full disclosure too. I used to teach architecture, um, and I, I'll never forget like um, I would like give a lecture and I would like quote all these philosophers, like in you know what they would say, and the student would be like, "That's not what they said," and I'd be like, "No, that's what they said," and then they they would read it out loud, and they'd be like, "No, they didn't say that at all," and they'd be like, "You're wrong." So, um, so, you know, design thinking, you know, very subjectively, um, is it's not, once again, it's not solving the problem, you know, it's starting with, you know, s something that's presented as a problem. And once again, exceeding by creating value above what the natural solution would be. 
right? It's a, it, it's a complicated thing to, to unpack. So it's like, you know, um, you know, if somebody asks you, like a great example is, um, do you guys know uh, Frank Gehry's Guggenheim Bilbao Museum? So, I'm not too familiar, so, no. Okay, so, and do you know Frank Gehry, the architect? I think he's from Toronto. He's from Toronto. Come on. Um, we'll have I think to look this up after the show. Yeah. Yeah, see, so, but uh, no, if, if you can elaborate, that would be awesome. So, like Frank Gehry, and he's this is going to be like a botch example of design thinking, but, you know, he was he was first a modernist and he was a postmodernist. So he went from, from cubes to like, uh, you know, and like form follows function kind of stuff to like, Oh, I'm going to make a, an advertising agency that looks, the building looks like a pair of binoculars, the more like gestural. And you're going to see like a lot of, you know, like analogous stuff to Brunelleschi's dome where he's like making these like forms over boxes, right? In order to make the forms over the boxes, um, he had to talk to then Katia, the software company, right? Which was, you know, all aerospace, like the highest tolerance in the bids. But he was like, you know, the only material that they could get that would be light enough on some of the buildings that he was making was titanium. In order to get the curvature and the formwork for the titanium, it had to be extremely precise. So he went from, you know, like expression to like the most extreme precision. And then, so he starts a software company called Gary Technologies to start accommodating the production of these forms, which becomes a little bit bigger than like his actual design practice. Then uh, Bilbao, Spain, which is like kind of like a, an automotive, like kind of an industrial center in, in Spain was like, hey, we've got uh, a museum, uh, why don't you design it? So he designs this thing, and you guys should just Google it real quick. This is a while ago. And they build this thing and it's out of titanium and the world is just like fucking floored. And so tourism starts to go up. People don't recognize Bilbao as like this center of what it was. All of a sudden it's where the museum is, right? All of a sudden people are just going to see this, you know, this effort like of just like all this stuff. And so I just bring that back up. Like, so design thinking and like, once again, just like an application to all this stuff is just like, it's just like, it's like flying a kite. Right, you have two constraints, right? Or not two, but you you know you have an anchor and you have some amount of force. Yeah. And wherever and whatever you do with that force is up to you. The problem with manufacturing is like it's not naturally fluid. Like it doesn't reward that fluidity. Like so, if you think about oh, we're going to make the best car in the world, and like oh, hang on, you know, Sarah's got a great idea. We're going to fucking stop everything and do it. Um. But in American history, uh, there's a great essay, and I always forget the, the essay is. Uh, the essay was called The Everyday Aesthetics of Being. And so in the early automotive world, the people on the assembly line were noted for the signature they left on each and every car because they were still, you know, putting a bumper on, vaulting, hammering, like some of the angles to make it right. And so there, there was this observation that like it was the collective effort of this hive making individual like design, like aesthetic based decisions that gave America the ability to produce cars like they did. So back to now and like kind of getting lost in this question is just like, I don't fucking, you know, I don't know here, where and how, you know, it's applied. 
like at the places that I see it successful, it's like yeah. less about the stuff that people are doing, but now more about building the machines. Like factories are machines now. Like, you know, like you, you know, what is um Elon call call the, the big battery facility the not the something not, whatever, but just like making these right. incredibly flexible, like turn on a dime, but they never work that way, right? These like buildings are machines. There's not just machines in a building. So it's like, I don't know if there's like a place outside of, you know, the how a product is incepted in the beginning that design thinking should carry or can carry through like the, the highest functioning supply chain, right? Like you're not going to go to Boeing and say, hey, let's make you guys better by like doing a design design thinking workshop. Yeah. Right. There's just too much. There's just too much. So it goes back to like, well, where where and how can you alleviate time cycles and pressure so that becomes an opportunity? And how do you build, you know, how do you build a fucking process-based sandbox for these these types of businesses? Like that's just to me, that's like always like going back to my 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 grandfather being like, Yeah, build us another fucking factory. Are we like are we at a point like where that that is something of interest? There's a there's something going on in the insurance industry um, where they're finding that it is cheaper to offer um, redundancy and production capabilities to massive companies versus underwrite them for potential bad stuff to happen. What I mean is like, so instead of like a big automotive company paying X number of dollars for disaster or a potential disaster or supply chain issues, the insurers are like, let us build you the biggest factory in the most stable place in the world in the event something happens that you will not be stopped. So <laughs> so if you think like in that regards, like, you know, to me that is design thinking where you're like, oh, we can't, you know, we can't fundamentally think about how to mitigate a lot of the issues that might happen in a factory, but we can build a system in a whole new factory. Like that's just like, yeah. it's the kite. You just like, yeah. let it flow. Like, so, you know, so that like, it's just, it's so complicated. So it's, yeah. no, but it's I, magical I, to think about. It, 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 it truly is. And, and Yassine did, is there anything you wanted to, to add on to that? I've got a million <laughs> questions. Yassine is, are there any questions you want to ask on your end? No, but uh, I, I loved all of your example because, yeah. uh, um, uh, uh, I, I absolutely love designer. Like uh, yesterday, I was uh, uh, I was presenting in a, in a, uh, in front of uh, of students. Uh, it's art students in a, in an engineering department uh, that took uh, a course on generative AI. So it's like uh, super eclectic. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I'm always fascinated by the uh, this design thinking kind of uh, uh, concept. Because it's the it's one of the things that you kind of feel, and every explanation of it is just like it's it's simple, but then it's just like it's a bunch of example to to show you that it's something that is that is kind of lived. Um, and there's very few things like this in the in the world, but like uh, I totally get it, um, mm -hmm. and I, I totally get how when you kind of go back to. The system and then you improve the whole system then there's more than just like problem thinking or problem solving this it's like it's more mm -hmm. of the of the stuff you're changing the whole kind of game 
Um, yeah. But uh, it's a mindset that is uh, uh, very difficult to articulate and a bit alien to a lot of people. It took me a long time to kind of get the hang of it. But that's what I, I love about, you know, whatever the current state of AI is, doesn't matter. I think it's what it's allowing to think, which yeah. is what are we greater than AGI? How, how do we accomplish that? And that's why I'm saying, I think like the next, the next push is just going to be like everything. Like I think AI is going to create its own flywheel of like making things to help its survival and help its own growth. But I think this is where design thinking kind of takes over that system naturally is going to create something greater than whatever the sum of the inputs are, right? And the answer is not yeah. like, for example, humanity or like, you know, greater capacity for humans. It's just going to be something alien, like, and I don't mean outer space. It's just like magic. Finally, like fucking magic can happen because this thing is just going to cycle. It's just like the entropy of all the bullshit in life. Like, it's like, you know, it's like, it's yeah it's just going to create its own fundamental like hell-based butter churn i don't know how to describe <laughs> it other than like and so i get very hopeful to think like okay well what yeah. the fuck you know back to like what would we ask ourselves if everything is possible yeah and it's like you know maybe yeah, yeah. like yeah. And then you push the limit <laughs> and then you you go into another uh like you said the the dome thing uh then you see with this new paradigm you you check where the limit is and then you can finally burst a bit more yeah i was gonna say i love how much uh, alien talk has happened uh, we we've managed to throw in an alien here an alien there it's great so <laughs> I, yeah i appreciate that um Something that I wanted to to ask, we're we're both in the procurement space here with with our software, and it's a hot topic right now: digital transformation. Um, I was curious from your lens, Dura, what what does digital transformation in procurement mean? Because we hear a lot about that these days. Uh, this absolute same thing with a different interface. <laughs> like, I, just, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. It's like, um, but that's really. You know, when you think about the stuff that all of us are doing, it's workflows and based off of some, you know, some table somewhere. Like, and so digital transformation, I think the, you know, the most ambitious thing that we can hope for is, and what we are all trying to do, but I don't think we're doing as good as, as we hope is like adoption. Like, I think adoption is the sexiest word that people don't talk about within the world of digital transformation. It's like, how the fuck do you get somebody to take the risk to try something that is fractionally better? Because digital transformation, as, as we all present it, really, it is fraction, like, and I'm not disparaging, fractionally better in our world is like hundreds of billions of dollars in, in like throughput change, right? But like, but that, to get somebody to adopt, it goes back to that GTM thing yeah. that we we're talking yeah. about. No matter how sexy it is, yeah. you're you're still advertising or emailing the person that's not allowed to look at their web browser in a factory 
they're looking for solutions while they're taking a dump, like, you know, like on their, their personal phone. And, but so like, when you think about digital transformation, it's just like, for our world, that's such a hive mentality. Like digital transformation is just like the first, like, like, I don't even know what measurement, the smallest, you know, like, you know, nanometer of the supply chain stuff, right? It's just like, how do you get that frac that fractional trust for fractional change for like exponential output so all this other awesome stuff can happen? Yeah. And it's just like, go ahead. Uh, yeah, but uh, uh, um, I, I like the, that you anchored it on the word adaption because um, the like when you look at the system paused and you're like, if we all pause, right, and you take this and then you adapt it, you're going to get better. But the main issue is that the system is in motion. The plane needs to leave, right? The pipe that you're doing needs to be done and you need to so give that to your customer. And this is the, the main issue is that how do you get someone that is like uh, sleeping like five hours a day um, because he's overwhelmed to kind of just take a step back and, 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 and uh, learn how to use this and take the risk uh, in order to, for him to actually sleep better and, and not be overwhelmed. And um, uh, I think uh, in terms of digital transformation and improving like this fractional trust code that actually uh, leave the people to to be able to do more after the fact um is the single most important thing to to get it is. if you don't get this right you can have the most beautiful solution right mm -hmm. but if you have to pause the system in order for this to work you will never get it it will never yeah. happen no no and that's and i think you know what what i get really worried about uh just for our breed uh, of startup is that the channels are still owned by much larger companies because the cycles you know take so long and the the risk reward on the investment side doesn't play that time game very well but what back to like you know design thinking creativity and all these massive things that happen what has to happen is a massive influx of digestible technology to your point that can just bolt on as people as people move yeah. and it's i just feel you know there was talk in the, the like 2010s um ge and companies were trying to come up with a universal platform that all companies could just they weren't actually trying to be selfish they're just like we have to find a way that every company can just plug stuff in and evaluate yeah right like how do you you know just stuff like you know buy a package of formulas for, you know, metal casting or just like whatever it is, because to your point, like right now, the only solution really is like when you've got 50,000 employees and 25% of them are working offline on their spreadsheets and, you know, their ERPs are just like legacy and some terminal and blah, blah, blah. It, it's just, it's impossible. So it's like yep. digital, digital transformation as it stands, unfortunately, is just 100% reliant on a roulette game of adoption. Yeah. And there's no, there is no proven method for like infrastructural systems. Like, you know, y'all provide a great infrastructural system and, and like, you know, there's other platforms that are doing great things, but just like 
just like if I had one fucking dream, like back to the analogy, you know, my grandfather just like build us another factory. Just like, how do we build, how, how can we mirror systems in a zero trust environment, which is what is needed? Like, you know, like you said, like if you could go into a customer and say, here, just press this button, all your data is gonna pop over here right now. And I'm gonna show you a simulation using your real-time data over the next six months, they'll be like, okay, fine, we, we'll buy it. Like, they'll just like, that's what it would take. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, will, it will take that. It will take the easiness, but it yeah. also will take the trust that you yeah. can pull it up. Um, that, and that, that's, especially in manufacturing, because um, uh, the whole industry is trust-based. Like that's like, uh, you're, you go with the supply, why? Because we kind of trust him that he will not mess it up, right? And will mm -hmm. not uh, mess up the whole supply chain. But that's kind of how it's spec is duct taped together. But when you jump something in the middle of this, uh, the trust need to be super high, and the 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 friction of adoption would need to be like none. And if you get that, then they get in and then okay, perfect. Now it start to work. Yeah, and that's okay. not hard. Yeah, that's not hard at all. No, no, it's super easy. We do that every day. It's, uh, it didn't take any time to to get any client. No. So like, trust me, I'm Canadian. Like we we do nothing wrong. We're 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 very polite up here. Well, yeah. I, I need to I need to start throwing in some uh, some f bombs. Yes. Yes. Am I good? Am I good? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I love it. Um, I just want to touch right now on uh, uh, and I don't know how much time you have uh, left, Ra, but we can kind of uh, start wrapping it up whenever you want. But I was curious in 2023, what are your thoughts on uh, what are major blockers to stability uh, and efficiency? In the total supply chain and what and if you have an answer for that what what are some ways we can kind of get around those blockers i well i mean i think i think the most important thing that we've discussed like is exactly the kind of the the diagram the velocity of trust yep you know i think that is everything like whatever that graph is for adoption like, I don't care about, you know, like, we can say everything, like climate, you can say all this stuff, like throughput, material, like resources, commodity, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. None of it matters if we cannot increase the rate of new technology adoption within these companies. And we cannot increase that rate without exactly what you're talking about. So either we change the vector, right? or we come up with like a solution for that vector problem. I don't even know if that's the right phrase. It sounds sexy, but like, but like it, it we have, to, it yeah, <laughs> we have to, we just have to change that, that signature, be able to provide, you know, the technology, you know, for, for that evaluation, because I mean, it's like trust is such bullshit. It really is. And like, I'm from a part of the United States where that, that is the currency. Like, you know, it's just like, it is an anecdotal, like a, a bucket of anecdotal gobbledygook that we base every phone call or whatever on. And it's just like, it gets really exhausting. You know, I've been doing just this manufacturing specific, like technology specific stuff for like going on, like, it feels like, you know, well, 20 years more or less. And, um, and it's just one, very similar situation after another. So y'all are the next generation, the youngest generation 
Um, and it's like, to, to get over this, it, something in the product inherently has to address it, like for evaluation. The notion of enterprise software has to go away, right? We have to think more compartmentalized, I think, like to get over this trust component, like how can you evaluate and digest things that show the total programmatic capabilities of something that you're building, right? It's just like, it's all those things. Like if you think about like, it always gets dumbed down into this mill, like, you know, you're a startup, okay, well, you've got to, you can start cheap, but you have to eventually go into enterprise. You gotta get the bigger contracts. Those sales cycles are gonna be greater than 90 days, most likely 180 days in order, blah, 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 blah. like all this shit. And just like back to creativity, like fundamentally, like what the fuck can we do like to provide instant solutions so that the longer tail of what we, we've made, like here's another fascinating thing. Every one of us manufacturing startups, we started with like a core hypothesis of one tiny solution. But then we built a platform uh, platforms to rationalize it. That's like the thing that, you know, it's just like, but that one solution, whatever, like for example, at make time, it wasn't a great pricing algorithm. It was pure fucking garbage in the beginning. Like all of all we had was like, <laughs> like love the honesty. I mean, it was it was basically like, you know, like how much does this thing cost? Like basically, our software said, eh, I don't know, fuck it, ten dollars. So, but the the beauty is, is like it doesn't make any difference. Exactly like market. a human. This is cool. Oh, it's yeah. like AGI. <laughs> That's right. We're ahead of the curve. So. But anyway, like I just, uh, you know, bring that up. It's just like the biggest blocker is it is adoption. It's evaluation, adoption, and evolution of software from one company to a company that's using it. And what I'm totally like fearful of, and I'm not saying like the SAPs and like, you know, the Epicores are horrible companies, but they're the ones that are in place, right, to offer the new stuff. But their but their incentives are different. Like the thing that I love so much about startups is like there is a genuineness to the the solution setting. Like I you know people don't doubt for a second that y'all want to help whoever your customer is. Like I'd like I want to really help my customer. It's not the SAP doesn't. It's just like the distance from you know you know why they're doing to the financial mechanisms that they're doing to the, the customer like hope is it's just a lot different so if you get a bunch of us working in magnitude and this is like all like you know way conflated and like way too optimistic here that's when we open up all this other shit that we're talking about but it starts with how the fuck i think we can be more honest with our customers and showing them the true solution of what we're doing and i think it's also like there's just like some leveling and like you know right sizing in terms of like what the the capital hopes are you know uh both on the ingestion like what a company needs to survive and make stuff yeah and i don't know but it, it just it's deeply worrying to me like because going back to that question no matter people people can say fucking okay like climate change it doesn't fucking matter like even with all the the you know the gusto and push that like the the world's going to melt it still doesn't mean that somebody's going to stop using chemical a right and so if that's not going to happen manufacturing they're just not going to stop and to your point earlier you're saying like and just like 
press pause to evaluate. Well, no so, one wants to press pause. That's a, no. that's the main thing, and no one can because if you press pause, why? And I'm competitive. What would I press pause if you're paused? I was just gonna go 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 faster. That's um, right. And this is why it's like more of the same, um, and like a bit of incremental stuff. Uh, but I think like um, um, from what you said, um, uh, the 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 actual solution for like more stability, more efficiency, um, I think will happen uh, in two ways: in uh, um, in the gap in the system that will change the system. I think this is where it's at. I, I don't think it's like the big players that will kind of go and move the thing because they're gonna break the stuff that is already the pipe. They will they will just break the street. They will break the pipe. Uh, while all of the smaller player and uh, while, while understanding like what's going on and how to smooth out, increase that trust with mm -hmm. the advent of more data and, and, and better visibility on this um, and look at the gap in the system and capitalize on that. Um, I'm hopeful that uh, this uh, this will allow um, uh, people to uh, have a uh, an ongoing system that is less um, I'd say uh, less fast, right? If mm -hmm. if there's something that is ongoing, okay, cool. I will let it uh, move. I know where it's gonna go, but then I can improve myself. And then when I come back, I'm gonna do uh, do, do the right move. But when it's going like a hundred miles per hour downhill, uh, no helmet. Um, you're not you're not gonna step uh, any second out of this. Um, right. So, but uh, to your point, I think this is the, the bringing looping back the design thinking and the and the change having to happen from the startup. Um, I think the stability and efficiency will come from these small mm -hmm. players, and we'll see more of them, especially in supply chain, um, mm -hmm. because there's tremendous opportunity to not just do incremental improvement. Uh, but really to literally, literally change the whole game because no way it can it can still hold on uh, mm -hmm. with what we we've been doing for for 20 years too much change uh, for this to to be true right no i think that's i think it's beautiful and the the notion of the gap i think you, you could sum up everything from this podcast is just now i'm very hopeful uh that we can all accelerate our exploitation of the gap right to to better i think better increase the odds of adoption like throughout supply chain but that's like it's a really nice visual to think about being able to attack that way well abiento uh, adama uh have a good uh evening you guys and um let's do it again Sure, it's for been sure. a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Yasin as well, thanks for joining us. Enjoy the rest of the day, everyone, on the weekend. See you. Bye-bye.